Okay, welcome everybody to another episode of Something for the People. I am your host, Be Smooth, and today my illustrious guest is an entrepreneur, a businesswoman, a yogi, an educator, does any and almost everything. We're going to go through the whole list. Welcome, Miss Joanna Brooks. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. All right, great. So first off, we always ask, so how are things going in your life right now? Good. Things are real. Um, super busy with the studio and getting our summer program out, um, prepping for our yoga in the park series. Um, but all in all, things are good. All right. So, as always, we start off with where our guests are from. So, you were born in Milwaukee, correct? Yep, born and raised. All right. So, tell us a little bit about growing up in Milwaukee. So, I on the north side of Milwaukee, uh, right at about 27th and Juneau. Um, I lived with both of my parents and um, three of my siblings, and uh, my parents were incredibly overprotective of us, um, then and now, actually. But uh, so we, of course, had friends in the neighborhood, um, but we weren't able to really, like, venture out that far across the street, things like that. Um, so, our, you know, our friends would have to come uh, to our house and play in our backyard, or at least on our side of the street. Um, but all in all, like, my childhood in Milwaukee, it was pretty, um, it was innocent and uh, uneventful, which I think is a, a really good thing. Um, I stayed, uh, we lived at 27th and Juno for most of my, uh, younger years, and then, um, towards the end of middle school, my parents purchased a home on the northwest side of Milwaukee, um, and, uh, we moved over there and eventually moved, um, to an apartment after my parents divorced also on the northwest side of Milwaukee, so, uh, most of my life actually has um, revolved around life on the north side of Milwaukee. Um, and even to this day, as an adult, the home that I purchased on the northwest side as well. Okay, so you mentioned you have siblings. How many siblings did you have? Well, total I have um, four siblings. So I have three older sisters and then a younger brother. Okay, so before your younger brother, you were the youngest child. You were the baby. Yeah, I'm the baby girl, too, okay. so that, that still has some benefits that I'm reaping to this day. Okay, so this is around when, uh, sorry, mid, mid to late 80s. So, how what was Milwaukee like in the, like, the late 80s? So, so you're just a small child. Well, yeah, so I was born in 83. Okay. So, um, I was maybe like a five, six years old at the end of the 80s. Um, and so my my recollection of that time isn't, you know, obviously sophisticated or probably even that strong. Um, and again, because I, I grew up in a household where we weren't really allowed and able to venture out much, a lot of my memories um, are about you know, family coming over to the house, celebrating holidays and things like that. Um, of course, you know, if, you know, you know, that's probably getting into the 90s that I'm, now that I think about it, but, 
even just thinking about the type of toys we have, the type of entertainment we have, um, CD players, and you know things like that. Those are things that come to mind when you mention like the end of the '80s and me probably just assuming and moving into uh, early to mid '90s. Um, but yeah, we didn't. Our parents didn't uh, let us out of the house uh, too often. I guess out of fear of like crime or something, you know, happening to us at that time. So memories are limited. Okay. That time frame. okay, so let's uh, switch over to the uh, to the nineties then. So, uh, can you talk about your first recollection of uh, going to school and just interacting with uh, with children growing up? Yes, repeat that question one more time. You sound kind of kind of muffled. Okay, just tell me about uh, going to the nineties. What it was like going to school and you know interacting with other children at the time. Yeah. So. Um, Although I grew up on the north side, um, I was bused to school on the south side. I went to Grant Elementary School. And, um, you know, at that particular school, it, you know, Milwaukee is very segregated. Um, and so primarily you have um, people of color, black people specifically, who live on the north side. And then, um, white and Hispanic folks on the south side. And so being bused to school on the south side, of course, and a lot of our classmates um, were white, Hispanic. And so we were um, uh, very few. I was one of very few uh, black kids actually at school. And one of the things that I remember, one of my most salient memories really is um, sometimes being um not by the white or Hispanic kids, but actually some of the the other black kids that we went to school with um, because they thought we spoke too proper. So we referred to my, to my mom as mommy um, and other things like that. So I remember at one point uh, a classmate even calling me an Oreo and things like that. Okay, so... So they called you Oreo. That's it's very interesting. So, weren't you, weren't all the black people since Milwaukee is so segregated? weren't all the black people like living generally in the same area? So how when did you all have been around each other? Like I don't. So was it just because mm -hmm. of like your, you know your your family seems they were very strong on education. So was it because of that? Like you just were or just different you know way of behaving. You know, so the kids that we played with, like, around our house, now that I think about it and you bring that up, they must have been, like, really nice. Um, because growing up, um, my, my mother is um, deceased now. And later in life, like, middle school um, and beyond, I started to refer to my mother as mama. You know, kind of like, you know, most African-American children do. Um, however... You know, before we started getting teased about that, um, we referred to our mother as mommy. And, you know, the African-American community has this whole thing about, like, um, or used to have, I hope it's not so much an issue now, but making fun of um, kids who speak proper or talk white. And so, you know, I, I think it was just a little bit of that. Yeah, Milwaukee is segregated, and so um, most black people at that time anyway lived on the north side so a lot of my black peers who went to the same school again there weren't many of us 
lived on the north side, but we didn't necessarily live in the same neighborhood, and we didn't necessarily lead uh, the same life either, mm -hmm. I would say. So what was your interaction like with system schools, majority white and Hispanic? What was your interactions like with them? You know, for the most part, I think it was pretty, um, pretty average. There was, there was nothing really that stood out to me uh, beyond, you know, the first experience you, you have that teach you that you're different than your classmates. So I remember having a conversation with uh, one of the other students, a white girl, and mentioning something about like my mom doing my hair or putting grease in my hair. And I just remember like the look on her face. She was so disgusted that my mom would put grease in my hair. And she was thinking of like, I guess like cooking grease or something like that and just didn't, you know, at that age um, and having, I guess, minimal like interactions with people of color didn't have the capacity to to understand what it was that I was talking about or um, or even have an understanding of like black hair and black hair care. Um, and then another, another um, memory that I have is that, and this was really young, but I just remember comparing my body to the bodies of other um, girls around me, specifically white students. And, um, you know, growing up, my family would always... Um, tell me that I had big legs, right? And they would say it in a way that was meant to be, you know, a compliment to me. They would tell me I had big, pretty legs. Um, and so I never really thought too much of it until I got to school and, you know, you sit like in the auditorium where you sit in the seat. And I don't know what made me notice this, but one particular day I just looked down at my thighs and saw them spreading across the seat and looked over at one of my peers and she was taking up nearly as much space in her seat as I was. Um, and so that became a little bit of a thing for me um, for a little while. I think those are kind of like the first introduction uh, for me to understanding um, how I was different, I guess, because of my blackness mm -hmm. and um, what comes along with that in terms of care and, um, you know, like body and body image. Okay, so did you find yourself uh, becoming more self-conscious because of that? For a, for a while there, um, and even though I always had um, the encouragement and the support from my family, my mom, my aunts, and things like that, I think for a child just noticing that you're different in some way, right? So you might you might notice that there's a difference between you and someone else, but when you see that most of the girls your age kind of like look the same, have the same um, body size, uh, same type of hair. You, I think it does um, put a child in a position to feel a bit um, insecure or self-conscious or at the very least feel othered or different yeah. in, a, in a not so good way. Yeah, understood. Uh, now, and I just have to go back to the, like the, the hair grease things. Did she think that y'all like fried chicken and then like, ooh, this is going to make some good hair gel? Is that what she was thinking? Because that yeah, sounds ridiculous yeah, to yeah, me. <laughs>
you know, that was kind of like special time that was sacred time. And I think to take the time to cleanse and detangle and grease the scalp and style the hair, uh, you know, that's uh, uh, an important experience and a bonding experience between mother and child. So, you know, I always saw that for the most part, I was tender headed, but for the most part, I saw that as a positive thing. So then to be met with that look of disgust, disgust from a white peer, um, just kind of made me question it and made me realize for myself that I guess there's other ways that people, you know, approach hair care and that some people will look at how I do my hair, how my mom did my hair as disgusting or gross. And, you know, I think that's, um, that's uh, one of the privileges of being white. You don't really have to take on other people's perspectives or think about how other people live their lives. Okay. And then the burden that comes with that, too. Okay, so we're now in the 90s. So you mentioned you lived on Juno, but then you moved. So did you move sometime in the 90s? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah actually it was. It was towards um, the end of the 90s. My parents um, bought a home on the northwest side, which at that time, again, it was still, I think, primarily dominated by um, black people, but it was seen as a better area to live in. So you were, in a sense, moving up mm-hmm. in the world. Okay, so you guys, you got your Jeffersons on, you guys moved on up. Okay, <laughs> so what was that like uh, leaving one neighborhood and going to an- another? Yeah. You know, for me it was fine because I've always been, you know, kind of okay with change. And again, um, we were so uh, sheltered and overprotected that it wasn't like, although I enjoyed like the kids that I played with in the neighborhood, I didn't have deep ties. And I was younger, but I had an older sister who was a teenager who was getting to the point where um, being sheltered was too much for her. So she started to rebel and she had made like really strong friendships with some of the other teens in the neighborhood. So I just remember it really being a struggle for her. Um, which then, of course, impacted the rest of the household. Um, and it definitely added stress for my mom uh, around how my parents, um, shortly after we moved, actually separated and then ended up um, divorcing. And so my mom was kind of left with the burden of, you know, being a mom to all of the kids, but then also trying to give my older sister um, special attention. She was um, running away just to go back to the old neighborhood. And, you know, for me, I enjoyed being in this new home. I understood that it was ours, that it was a big thing, that my parents had accomplished a goal that they set for themselves, and they were really proud about this. Um, I understood that we had a nice house, and we had a driveway and a garage with a basketball hoop uh, for my brother. And so, you know, I just thought, I thought it was great. And I, I don't think I've um, really been opposed to change in my life in general. So it was, a, I would say, a pretty um, easy transition and a welcome transition for me. Okay, thank you. So you, you, you guys move into this house. You know, it's a nice house. It's a better neighborhood. But then shortly afterwards, you, you know, your family, your parents separate. So how, how did you, like, react to that? Because that's kind of a, that's two major events. Y'all not only move in neighborhoods, but then your family is, 
your family situation is changing. So how did you react to that? Yeah, so, you know, as I think back, I think there were probably just a couple of years in between those two things. Like, they bought the house, we moved. Um, and it didn't seem like it was long before my parents actually separated, but I would say it was probably about um, two years. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, having always lived with my dad um, and being a, a self-proclaimed daddy girl, it was hard for me to not have him in the house anymore. Because I just love my dad so much. Um, so much so that my dad worked like second or third shift. He would get off and usually make it home like around two in the morning. And, you know, I would go to sleep at, you know, like a normal um, and appropriate time for a child. But I would always wake up like 30 to 45 minutes before my dad would return home from work and I would just kind of like sit up and wait for him. And it was not that I would leave the bed. I just needed to hear him come into the house um, and hear him get settled and go to sleep. And that gave me comfort. And then I would go back to sleep. So, um, you know, not having my dad around was definitely a change and an adjustment um, for me in a lot of ways. But I think, too, I also... I felt a responsibility to kind of flow with things to make things, you know, easier for my mom. I think I've, uh, I've always been um, thoughtful and aware of and in tune with other people's feelings. I've always been empathetic in that way. And so I think that the empathy that I felt for her called for me to um, figure out how to manage and not create, you know, more um, stress for her to, to work through at that time. Right, thank you. So so now we're in the late 90s, early 2000s. You're, I bet you're a teenager around this time, going to high school. What is that like? That's, that's another big transition. Yeah, um, high school isn't like my, my favorite memory because I think I've always felt like I didn't quite fit in with my age group. I tend to do really well with people who are slightly older than me um, and then um, people who are younger than me, so kids. Um, I never really lived a life that was similar to my peers, at least not in adolescence, right? So just keep going back to this, this idea or the fact that, you know, I was sheltered and my parents were super overprotective. So whereas my peers at that time, they were having sleepovers and meeting up at the mall and things like that, none of that was happening in my life. Um, I would go to school. Um, I, I wasn't very active in like after school activities and I would come home. Um, and, you know, of course, if there were kids like in the neighborhood, we were familiar with them. Um, actually, when we moved and bought the house, there weren't a lot of kids that we played with. There was a mom's family a couple of doors down. Mm-hmm. And I actually ended up building a relationship because they ended up, um, they would drop me off at home. We went to uh, me and one of the, the daughters of that family went to the same high school. And so eventually, like with her big sister would pick her up, they would pick me up too because I just lived a couple of doors down. But that was the extent of that relationship. So after school and even in the summers, um, I spent a lot of time in the house and a lot of time with my siblings. But when I think of childhood friends, I think of the ones that I grew up with on 27th and Juno, 
Uh, and then more than anything, I think of my siblings. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having said that, you know, I couldn't relate to a lot of my peers then. And I, and I definitely wasn't, like, hanging out with them on the weekends and things like that. And that may have made me maybe a little bit socially awkward. Um, and then that social awkwardness combined with, I think, my natural tendency to be a bit shy and to be reserved and to sit back and observe kind of um, put me in a position to feel like I didn't fit in. Now, I think feeling like you don't fit in is normal for most teenagers, right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of their yeah. struggles are centered around figuring out how they can fit in. Um, so that was definitely my experience, but just, I think, for different reasons. So, is there any any opportunity, any times where you felt like I'm I'm going to do this and this is going to help me fit in, or I'm going to? Did you ever feel like okay, I'm going to jump out of the box and do something to, you know, try to engage with my my uh, peer level? No, and for I mean, I'm sure because we're all impacted by peer pressure, so I don't, I don't want to make it seem like, you know, I was just this um, super confident anomaly of a teenager who didn't care what her peers thought, but um, I also didn't necessarily want to be like other kids, if that makes sense. When I remember in high school, um, freshman year, like one of the more popular girls um, approached me and asked me if I wanted to join her clique, like cliques were a big back then and she was forming this clique like I think they even called themselves like the hot girls or something like that and I was just like no I'm good you know and I didn't say it to be rude or to be like a mean girl or anything like that but I like like I I knew I had no intention of trying to keep up a facade for other people and I was way too much of like a nerd like I loved reading and I, I loved learning I still do to this day and you know, um, I was, you know, raised to respect my teachers and my elders and things like that. Not to say that they weren't, but I just wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing the type of things to go along and get along just to fit in with other students, including, like, the little dumb stuff that, you know, kids, uh, teenagers do from, t- from time to time, like being um, borderline disrespectful to, um, to, to their elders to get a laugh from their peers. That was just was never who I was as a person. And so I was, I've always been okay um, as long as I had, like, my small group, like one or two um, close friends that I could count on. Oh, so you you didn't want to be a hot girl. You didn't want to, you know, wear that little jersey dress. Was jersey dresses hot back then? I'm trying to remember. I'm getting cold, too. <laughs> Listen, like, um, this was like your balls and white teeth for the boys. Um, girls, something would wear, like, the guest. Jean Transitioning during high school, during high school. So you graduated high school in early two thousands. Yes, I graduated um, Rufus King High School in two thousand and two. Okay, so after after Rufus King, what, what's next for Joanna? Um, 
going to college. I had kind of been on this track. I went to um, Samuel Morris Middle School for the Gifted and Talented. From there, I tested and got into uh, Luther King High School, which is a, one of those college-bound um, high schools formed well uh, to this day nationwide. Um, and so I was kind of always being reared and encouraged and even expected to um, go to college. So um, I landed at Marquette University uh, in August of 2002 uh, as a uh, first-generation college student. My parents um, both had not completed or received their high school diploma, uh, but did have their GED. So it was kind of like a big, a big deal for my family. Now um, you'll remember that I told you that I'm the baby girl. Yeah. So I have older sisters. Um, of my three older sisters, only one went on to go to college. She went to Alberta for a semester. Um, but because of personal issues, she ended up taking a break. Um, so I was the first one to actually go through and finish okay. um, out of my siblings. Okay, so you're, it's August 2002. You arrive on Marquette University's campus. So what is it like then, arriving on campus, meeting a whole gang of new people? So luckily for me, I was... Um, I was going with one of my best friends from high school. We were actually, um, I was moving into the dorm, and she was my roommate. And I just remember feeling so um, so excited and relieved to a certain extent. Uh, I love my family, and I love and appreciate um, my parents for the values that they instilled in me and how they brought me up and, you know, all of those things. But, you know, as a young adult, being sheltered was starting to feel like too much, but again, I didn't have much of a rebellious spirit, so I just kind of waited it out. I waited till you know, I would finally be out and on my own, so moving into the dorms was my chance to, to finally be free, and um, I remember it, it wasn't the excitement that you would think for um, a family who was sending, you know, their child off to college in a, you know, a pretty um, well-respected university at that, my, um, I remember my best friend came and picked me up and I loaded my stuff, put it in her car, and, you know, I said bye to my mom and my siblings and just moved in. Um, and looking back, you know, since then I've worked in higher ed and so I've seen for myself, and even as I was moving in, saw the parents dropping the kids off and the excitement and the sadness and things like that. I think my mom was definitely sad to have me leaving the home. And she definitely had, you know, um, worries and concerns for her child going out into the world. Um, but for me, I was I was excited. I couldn't wait to, to go, honestly. Um, and... My intention when I arrived at Marquette was to to get out and meet people um, outside of uh, the small group um, of students that I knew who were coming from my high school. So I remember, um, I guess a, Mar a Marquette tradition is that they have um, during orientation this party 
four new students. And when I arrived on Marquette's campus back in 2002, of course they had like other black students, but it wasn't a lot of us. A lot of the students uh, who did in the corner Marquette were from like suburbs outside of Chicago, didn't have a lot of uh, experience being around people of color. And so I remember I couldn't convince like the, the few friends that I had made like earlier that day to go to this um, party with me. And so I decided to go by myself and I was just walking around and I remember feeling so by myself and so alone because it seemed like all of these other kids, even though they were new, they had, were already forming like these um, major like friend groups and they, you know, kind of figuring out where they fit. And because I wasn't with my friend group at that time, I felt really out of place. So I remember just kind of walking around and then I just uh, headed back to the dorm. And I ended up being kind of like symbolic of uh, my experience at Marquette uh, for the rest of the four years that I was there, you know, hanging out uh, with other students of color where I found a sense of like likeness and comfort. Okay. So t talk about that, like being around, since it was very a very small amount of uh, students of color at Marquette. Well, how, what was your experience like just, you know, a part of this, this small, this small group that was a part of a larger uh, campus? It was, it was amazing and it was the best thing. You know, I think everybody, they just need to feel like they fit in somewhere. And so, you know, luckily for me, as I mentioned before, um, I was going to, to college with one of my best friends from high school, and we were living together. And as it turns out, a couple of other girls from my high school were there, too. And on our first day, um, we met, like, another black girl, and we kind of formed this, you know, not intentionally, but we formed this little clique. Um, and we, because of them, I had the most amazing college experience. Um some of the girls have been, uh, were a part of the, the EOP program, the Educational Opportunity Program, which is, you know, um, um, a nationally funded TRIO program. Mm -hmm. And so then they had access to a wider network of first-generation students of color. And so through them, you know, I ended up meeting other um, black students on campus. And we supported each other and we hung out with each other and we spoke to each other, acknowledged each other. Uh, and, I, and for me, that made my college experience. So uh, skipping ahead a little bit, um, when I ended up going back to Marquette University to get my master's um, in 2008, I was so disappointed at the experience that I had then or even to see how the undergraduate students of color interacted with each other. I would see them walk past each other on the street and it didn't seem like there was that sense of family um, or a sense of connection between them. And for me, um, considering my experience as an undergraduate student, that was uh, saddening for me. Okay. okay, so what would you say was your best experience as an undergraduate? My best experience, like overall, was living in the dorm mm -hmm. and with this group of girls um, that I became very close. Your, your, your clique. Yeah, 
mean, that, that really was it. We kind of like grew up together. Just to be clear, like I was on point when it came to academics. So I was still studying and we would go to the library. But it, I, it was just it's something about that period of my life that was just so amazing to me. You know, to be out on my own. And you would think, considering that I grew up so sheltered, that I would go to college and, like, become really wild and stay out late. No. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you about to like, tell me a story. Out. Like, yeah, I, I took, as soon as I got on campus, I took this 12 cans of beer. I drank them all. And I <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> In fact, I didn't end up having, like, my first shot or even drink until I think I turned 28 years old. So what do you do? We're going to get to you going back to Marquette. But what are you doing in those two years in between? Working and being miserable. So one of the things me and my friends talked about leading up to and just after graduation is how nobody really prepares you to be done with schooling, right? Like you spend so much life as a student. You identify as a student, even through college. Um, and so, all of a sudden, it's done. And it's like, okay, now what do I do with my life? Like, it's almost like a, even though you're not that age, you're almost like a quarter-life crisis. You have to figure out, like, who you are. And then, as a first-generation student, you have to make something of yourself because you went to college and got this big, fancy degree. And so, it was just a... a, a kind of a stressful and a depressing time, not just for me, but for my girls as well. That's something that we talked about a lot. Um, I was, I worked through college um, for the Milwaukee Public Library System. Um, however, the job that I had was reserved for college students. So as soon as I graduated, then I would lose my job. So I was in a big rush to find a job. Uh, I landed a position at a law firm, which I was excited about initially because I thought I wanted to go on and practice law. And in my time there, I was able to do well. I got promoted a couple of times. I got some raises. Um, but I think working at this particular law firm is where I learned that I don't like how this idea of work is set up and structured in the United States. Um, and I also learned that I didn't really have much interest in um, becoming an attorney, at least at that point. Okay. So, what, what do you can you expand upon? What do you mean by like the the structure of American work? What what was it about it that you didn't like? I didn't like feeling owned by a company or an organization. Mm -hmm. You know, it always kind of struck me, even as I was working, like, through college and even, like, um, jobs that I had in high school, 
it always felt strange to me that there were things like dress code, like people could tell you, you know, how you should dress, what you can and cannot wear. Like, of course, there's common sense. You know, at work, you need to to look appropriate, but to dictate like the size of earrings and whether or not someone can wear earrings, and you know, like I thought that was strange, or that um, someone can tell you like when you can eat. I just thought to me it just felt like too much control and too little pay. Okay. And so, um, at the law firm specifically. Um, where I had to start, like, clocking in and clocking out and account for every minute of my time. I just really didn't like it. And so here I was, like, someone who had always been a dreamer and I had always been a student and I loved learning just for the sake of learning, right? And you, you kind of go through this process. You are um, reared to, like, go to school, get a degree, and then you're supposed to get a job. And the idea is that you'll work this job um, and maybe like, you know, move around a little bit, but ultimately you'll work up until the point of retirement, at which point you can enjoy yourself. And I just felt like on this job, I was giving up too much of myself. I don't like what my life was um, while I was working there. You know, like I get up, get dressed, go to work, do what they tell me to do. The work was repetitive and boring. Uh, and then you go home and you like clean up and you cook dinner and go to sleep and do it all over again. And to me, that just felt like a miserable existence. Okay. okay, so you worked that job for two years, then you go back to Marquette. What is that like going back? No, well, so I worked that job. I was probably there for like a year somewhere okay. in there. And I'm like, well, since I don't want to go to law school, let me put this psychology degree that I have to use. Okay. So I ended up going to work at a nonprofit organization that served young people as a program coordinator. Um, and that's where I learned that um, at least on the path I was on, I was going to make a whole lot of money with a psychology degree. So that's what prompted me um, ultimately to go back to school to get a master's. Okay, so as you studying for your master's, are you still working at the nonprofit? Are you doing both working and going to school? Um, when I, I applied, I was working at the nonprofit, but um, initially for grad school, I was supposed to be going to Pepperdine University out in California. Okay. Um, so the idea was. Um, you know, actually, let me back up. Um, while I was working at the nonprofit, I also had, you know, obviously my first introduction to, like, the nonprofit world and work and limited budgets and things like that. So while initially when I accepted that position, I was um, advised that eventually I would end up having full-time hours and benefits. Mm -hmm. That never um, came to be. So I actually ended up leaving that job, and I went to work at the Milwaukee Youth Arts center um, doing some support for a lady who kind of oversaw all of the programming there and at that point I'm just like I'm just working right because I need to make money and pay bills but if I have to work I want it to be something like somewhat enjoyable and I want to have a little bit of autonomy and freedom so I definitely had that but I realized that I needed to, to do more um, and so um, Although I had a 
might have been at the Milwaukee Youth Arts Center long before I got accepted into Pepperdine University. They were very kind and gracious and even threw me a going away party. Um, and so my family and friends threw me a going away party. And, you know, I was all set to move to California. I even moved out of my apartment. And literally, probably the weekend before I was set to leave, I decided that it just didn't feel right and I wasn't ready to leave home and I didn't want to leave home. Um, luckily for me, I had also applied to Marquette, um, to a graduate program at Marquette and been accepted in and I had deferred my enrollment. So then I decided not to go to Pepperdine. I reached out to Marquette to see if it was um, if there was any chance that I could still enroll in their upcoming fall semester and they um, accepted me in. So um, I stayed in Milwaukee and I started school right away. Right, right. So you were, so this is uh, fall of 2008, so. Yeah. Okay, so when did you finish your program? You said when? Yeah, when did you finish it? Yeah, I finished it in uh, uh, fall of 2010. Okay, so you got two. Actually, like I had to take, I, I finished, um, we had to do a summer semester, so my degree was conferred, I think, in September. Okay. Okay, so after, you know, your two years, oh, okay, wait, wait a minute, you talked about how you felt the campus was a little different, you talked about there was no, there wasn't any togetherness among the black students or people, students of color when you went back. Why, why do you think that that was? Why did you? Why did you? You said you went back in uh, 2008. You said there there wasn't a sense of togetherness among students of color and around when you mm -hmm. went back. It's supposed to for when you were an undergrad. So what do you think changed? You know, I don't know. I think it might have just been like social. Like of course, you know, the EOP program was still around, and so. Um, and, and as a graduate student, of course, my schedule like, was a little bit different. We went to school, you know, over the summer. It was a requirement of the program. So I guess my, the, the opportunities I had to interact with some of the undergraduate students was limited. But from what I did see, you know, like walking to class and my time in the library, it, it just didn't seem to have that same sense of, like, connectedness amongst students of color. Um, but maybe I felt that way because I was missing that at that point. You know, like, as a graduate student, of course, you know, I, there wasn't a lot that I could relate to in terms of where I was in my life at that point. Um, a lot of undergraduate students wouldn't be able to relate to my experiences, right? So it wasn't like I was hanging out with undergraduate students. And then again, I was faced with being um, pretty much the only black student in my cohort in the graduate program that I was in. So I definitely found myself feeling um, a little lonely, a little bit like an outsider in graduate school too. Okay, so what was it like being the only black woman in your cohort? That had to be like stressful and lonely, like you said. Yes and no. I think, you know, considering the fact that, you know, I went to an elementary school that was predominantly white, and I had gone through undergrad at Marquette as one of the few black students on campus. I had gotten used to being like one of few or the only, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, but then, you know, as you get older and you have more experiences and your consciousness is raised, I started to notice things that bothered me. So, like microaggressions, right? So not like necessarily flat out blatant racism, like somebody calling me the N-word, or, you know, which were experiences that some of my uh, friends and some of my um, like male peers of color at Marquette had as undergraduate students, but just little things, like I was in the counseling program, and so um, we, as part of that program, had to do internships at different um, organizations throughout the city, and so here were my white cohort, you know, in the inner city offering services to families of color, and then they would come to our our practicum class and kind of make fun of the lived experiences of their clients who looked like me and led lives that were culturally familiar to me. And they would mock how they talk and even like, you know, literally like mimic them and try to, try to, I guess, quote unquote, talk black and things like that. And, and had no idea, like completely went over their head how, inappropriate that was and I even remember like you know at that point you feel like you can say something but if you say something they still won't get it so what's the point so I just remember shutting down in that particular class and being called out later by my um and uh my instructor my professor who insinuated that you know I was um unapproachable like he noticed that I had shut down and you know basically trying to to put all those like angry black girl stereotypes on me, so essentially blaming me for shutting down because I didn't know how to respond to the the actions and behaviors of my peers that were racist and prejudiced. Mm-hmm. So, oh yeah. I forget what your original question was. I think you, I think you, I think you answered it because I, I don't know. I was just when I was listening to you talk. I just, I'm just, you know, I'm having like PTSD because you know, even working in a nonprofit world, you see a lot of, uh, well, white people who go into, or even education who go into like minority, uh, minority majority places, and they just, the ignorance is outstanding. So. Uh, yeah, it's infuriating, and then it, that, like, it completely goes over their head. They don't get it, and they blame you yeah. uh, for being upset or for shutting down or for not engaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so you, you, uh, you, now you've left Marquette. You've left uh, microaggression, microaggressionville, and so uh-huh. what's, what's next after that? Um... So I graduated in I think we're in twenty ten now. Huh? Yeah, I think we're in twenty ten, late twenty ten. Yep, mm-hmm. And so, um, I was actually offered a position. My internship site wanted to keep me on. I was in school for counseling, so the next step then would be to get my um two thousand supervised hours. I'm a licensed professional um, before I can go out like into the real world and offer counseling services and build insurance companies and things like that. However, 
through an internship site, although they were offering me like the free supervision of my hours and things like that, um, they just simply couldn't pay me enough for me to support myself. So I, I made my way through grad school by working a part-time student job at my kids and also a refund check. Mm-hmm. And when I graduated school, the refund checks weren't coming in. I still needed to support myself. So I, need, I needed to make more money than what this internship site was offering me. So I made the decision to decline their offer. Then I started looking for work right away. Uh, I had an interest in teaching at the college level. Um, and I also wanted to still put my counseling degree to some use. So I started applying to jobs in both of those areas. And nothing was really um, coming or materializing for counseling. And I was hitting roadblocks in uh, teaching also because um, a lot of the universities required you to have teaching experience. So one day, just like out of uh, frustration, I reached out to um, somebody at Carroll University. I may have, like, offered to be a teaching assistant or something like that, but I just, in frustration, mentioned that I was upset that I couldn't get the experience that I needed to land a teaching job because nobody would give me the chance. Like, how do you gain the experience if nobody else gets a chance on you? And this particular guy, he had Marquette connections. Like, his wife was a Marquette graduate or something like that. So he literally just took a chance on me. didn't know much about me at all. <laughs> he ended up offering me an um, uh, a adjunct faculty position at Carroll University out in Waukesha. So I ended up teaching for Carroll University for, I think it was two academic semesters, fall and spring, and I taught um, intro psych and also abnormal psych, and I taught multiple sections. So at that time, it felt like decent money um, that I could support myself with. Um, So what it was like being being a professor? What was that like? It was awesome. It, when I think about my work history, it was one of my favorite jobs because there was absolutely no oversight, no supervisors to report to, nobody micromanaging me. Of course, um, Carol offered me the support that I needed as an instructor, right? And there was structures and uh, parameters around uh, my syllabus and curriculum and things like that. But outside of that, you know, I was just free to go in and, and teach, teach the material, and they trusted me to do that. So that was one of my, my all-time favorite jobs, and that was my first taste of being a quote-unquote uh, independent contractor, too. I fell in love with that style of, of work, that the freedom and sense of autonomy that I had in that role. However, it didn't last for me because shortly after um, accepting the, uh, the, the adjunct faculty contract, I ended up also landing a full-time position as a career counselor at the Milwaukee Job Corps Center. And I couldn't turn down the salary that they were offering me. Like, it was beyond what probably any other place uh, in the city would pay me uh, as some, for someone who had a counseling degree but didn't have a license. I couldn't turn turn it down, and so for a while there, I was both 
teaching, accepted the teaching contracts already, and then also working full-time. Um, somewhere in there, I added onto my plate uh, searching for a home. I wanted to be a homeowner. And so it just became too much. So eventually I um, finished my last academic semester with Carroll University. I just didn't sign on for additional semesters. But to this day, it's been uh, some of my favorite work that I've done. Okay, so you, you move on from Carroll University, and now you're at the Milwaukee Jobs Corp Center. So what is that like? Job Corp, too, was one of my favorite jobs. I feel like it was uh, some of the most meaningful work that I've done. Um, but it was also the most stressful job, probably, that I've had to date. Um, there were high expectations for counselors uh, in terms of um, performance and making sure that our students performed and successfully graduated from the program. Um, it was just a lot of responsibility, um, a lot of expectations that were um, put on us, a lot of red tape, and a lot of stuff that just wasn't fair. Um, so after working there for four years, um, I decided to move on. I had an interest in um, getting back into higher ed, but this time in more of a student support role. So I ended up uh, accepting the position at Cardinal Schitt's University, and I was working in diversity and inclusion. My uh, official title was um, Multicultural Program Coordinator. Okay, so what was that like? hated it. Just to be perfectly honest, I hated it. I think diversity and inclusion is hard work in general, um, but especially for a university that um, isn't like really prepared or maybe invested to do that work. And so um, it was really ironic because uh, Carmel Church University they have a, a large percentage of students who identify as students of color, first-generation students, um, but they were uh, they were very um, old school in terms of like traditions and a lot of their policies and procedures and things like that. So I came in excited, you know, with the intention to do good work, and I realized um, after a while that the work that they wanted me to do, it just wasn't enough for me. But I didn't want to just do, you know, programming and plan events and be a glorified um, event planner. No disrespect to event planners, but um, that's essentially what I was for the university. Um, Hispanic Heritage Month would roll around, and then I would have to come up with some cute programs and things to offer that way. And then Black History Month would come, and I would have to think of stuff to do to celebrate or acknowledge black history and uh, it got all really quick I think I was definitely over qualified to that work um, and I accepted it the position because I, I wanted change and also because I had hopes of being promoted into a bigger role um, to do more in-depth work around diversity and inclusion that never ended up um, happening, but uh, after being there for um, a couple of years, I was just kind of over it, 
and no longer really interested in doing that work and specifically that work for that institution. Um, while I was there, I started my own business in body yoga. And so I was working full time and working really hard, you know, during my off hours to build my business and to build a client base. And so it just so happened for me that uh, when it got to the point where I was just over the work that I was doing for the university, and body yoga was making enough money to support me. And so I was able to transition into being in my business full time. Okay, so what what got you interested in yoga? Cause well, I think I've always been, I know that I've always been interested in and invested in movement. So as a kid, like um, going back to when I lived on 27th and Juno, uh, in middle school, I would get up every morning and do yoga. There was a yoga program that would come on TV, two 30-minute segments back-to-back, and I would sit and do yoga um, for an hour via that program that came on TV before I would go to school. And I did that every morning um, during the school week, uh, probably at least for a year. And that was like my first like introduction to yoga. And I absolutely loved how it made me feel. I loved having like this morning routine. But of course, like as a tween, preteen, I really didn't have the words or the insight to understand why I loved it so much and why my body loved it so much. So, um, because I was always kind of invested in movement and and fitness and wellness, um, largely from seeing my father um, work out consistently and always set up gyms wherever we lived, um, you know, I got into aerobics too and I got into running and I was really interested in dance. I even took, um, uh, dance classes in undergrad and for a minute could really consider, you know, trying to pursue becoming a professional dancer. And in fact, when I was accepted to Marquette University, I was accepted into the College of Health Sciences to study exercise kinesiology. But during orientation, freshman, uh, at the start of freshman year, uh, I ran into some student who spoke about how terrible uh, chemistry and biology was and how hard it was and being like the first one in my family to go and, you know, wanted to be the first one to finish. I just didn't feel like I could take that risk. So I switched my major right before classes started and I took, ended up taking up psychology in the College of Arts and Sciences. So even though I didn't pursue that, um, pursue like fitness and movement and wellness and my academic studies has always been a part of my life and something that I was interested in. So when I was working at the law firm um, post-undergrad and, like, really not enjoying my life at that point, um, I had fell into a period of being sedentary. I wasn't working out. I wasn't moving my body. And that probably contributed to some of the, the blues that I was feeling around that time in my life. So I started um, trying to find, like, workout classes and thinking about things that I wanted to try. So as I was on a computer looking up stuff on the Internet, I came across hot yoga. Um, there was this studio that offered, like, a, a heated yoga class, and I went and tried it out. And um, eventually ended up falling in love with it and knew at some point that I would 
studied to become a yoga teacher, but I had no idea that it would play as big a role in my life as it ended up playing. Okay, so when did you decide to start your own business? It was an accident. Uh, I tell people all the time, like, I'm an accidental entrepreneur. It was never really my intention to start a business when I started Embody Yoga. Um, I didn't have a lot of examples around me growing up of people who looked like me who successfully owned their own businesses, not people that I interacted with on a regular basis. So for me, that was kind of like a foreign concept. Now, as a yoga teacher, there's always the, the, the possibility of owning your own studio. So I figured, like, one day down the line, maybe like 10 years in the future, you know, I will open my own studio. And I put that limitation on myself because I figured, you know, I needed 10 years of teaching experience before, you know, I could have even the audacity to think about opening studio. But I started in body yoga because I got my heart broken. I was dating this guy. Uh, it went bad. We broke up. I was heartbroken and depressed um, and complaining to one of my friends. And she encouraged me to find a way to redirect all of that energy into something that was positive and something that would keep me occupied, you know, through my the healing journey. And so um, I was trying to figure out, like, what that would be. At this point, um, at this point, I was working at Cardinal Schutz University. So I was just, you know, getting up every day, going to work, coming home, um, and then, of course, doing yoga, you know, of course, here and there. Um, but it kind of put me on this, this track to really figure out, like, what my passion was or what I wanted to do with my life, and I was scrolling social media, and I came across uh, uh, Soleil's account. Now, Soleil used to be married to Genuine. She used to be a rapper. She was kind of uh, popping back in, like, the, I think probably the early 2000s. Yeah. And she had completely changed her life around. Like, she had become vegan, and she was a yoga teacher, and she was teaching yoga at her kids, like, dance studio. So I saw her account scrolling, and I saw her advertising about her yoga classes, inviting people to come, and it clicked. I'm like, oh, I'll just go out and start a yoga class on my own. Now, oh, I should also mention, I was also already, like, teaching yoga out in the community for, like, Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Public School System's recreation department. I was um, even, like, subbing classes and teaching a class at my teacher and my mentor's yoga studio. Okay. But as I mentioned before, I, didn't, I, I had never really thought that, you know, I would have a yoga studio or a business, at least not that soon. As I'm scrolling Soleil's account, I'm like, oh, I can do this too. I can just offer a class on my own under my name and see how it goes. And so my plan was to offer just one class, one time a week, I think six weeks. And so I got busy with, like, coming up with a business name. Why I felt like I needed a business name for six weeks, I'm not sure. <laughs> but I came up with the name Embody Yoga. I put together, like, a little makeshift logo, which was horrible at that time, but it was a way for people to identify me, and it made me feel, like, more official. Okay. And then I started, I, I actually got on social media, because I wasn't big on social media. I didn't like social media. I didn't have a Facebook account. 
got on Facebook and started like connecting with people and promoting this yoga class that I was going to offer once a week on Wednesday for an hour at a time for just six weeks. And I decided to make the first class free. So um, that first class, 14 people showed up, and that blew my mind because other places that I was teaching, it wasn't a lot of people showing up. I was uh, teaching at a predominantly white yoga studio. I was a new teacher. The community was well-established, so they weren't necessarily open to new teachers. They had to... They had to hear for a long time good things about a teacher before they would actually give them a shot. So my classes at that studio were small, maybe like uh, four people would show up each week if I was lucky. And then teaching for um, MPS Rec, those weren't people who were coming to see me specifically. They had just signed up for a yoga class that was advertised. Um, so they were just coming, you know, because they had signed up for it and wanted to try something new. So, um, I was uh, overwhelmed with having 14 people uh, sign up because they knew me or had heard about me and were willing to give me a shot. And so, um, you know, I led my, uh, the first round, the first six classes, and it went well. Even after that first class, people were like, well, how can I sign up for the rest of the classes? And then uh, a gentleman came that first day, and he was, I didn't know it, but he was kind of like auditioning me. He was looking for somebody to come teach yoga at his church. So then he reached out to me. He was like, I want you to come teach at the church. So I ended up teaching over there, and it just kind of snowballed, you know, with, you know, I was committed. I was good at what I was doing, but it wasn't like I was being strategic. You know, it just snowballed into this thing that became Embody Yoga. And, um, you know, starting out, I didn't have a yoga studio, not a brick-and-mortar one anyway. I just had a yoga business. I was teaching, you know, out in the community, um, and I was working to, you know, let people know, black people specifically, about the benefits of yoga. Um, and eventually, I guess people saw, like, my consistency and my passion. And they rewarded that by showing up and spreading the word. So then I started getting, like, corporate contracts. And more people started showing up for my classes that I was having in the community. And uh, before you know it, I was presented with an opportunity to be a part of a huge development in Milwaukee uh, where I would have my very own yoga studio. So you went from, uh, I guess you were a door-to-door yoga instructor. To now having your own studio, so okay. Yeah, I I, call, I, call, I said I had a. The so people didn't know how to like describe my business, right? Because most yoga teachers they either teach for somebody, they teach at studios, or they own the studio. But here I was starting my own business with no place to house it. So I just said we're like a, a mobile yoga business. Mm-hmm. I, I had spots in the community where I offer weekly classes, um, and then otherwise. You know, I would go to people's houses if they want private sessions or uh, uh, corporations, businesses would uh, contract me to come in and teach. All right. So what does Embody Yoga offer today? So um, I try to stay true to who we've always been, like being in and of the community. 
only um, specialize in sharing the practice of yoga with people of color specifically. All are welcome, but we are not shy and apologetic about the fact that we were started to service people of color and that um, people of color are passionate and the reason why we continue to do the work that we do. So um, we are still, you know, out in the community. I have youth service organizations and schools that contract uh, my business to come in and teach yoga. Um, and now we have a brick and mortar yoga studio too, so we have our own home and we offer um, about 15 yoga classes a week. How can people get in contact with Embody Yoga? Yeah. Uh, so we have a website uh, uh, that also includes a virtual studio. So people don't necessarily need to be in Milwaukee to practice with me. Um, my website address is www.embodyyogamke.com. Uh, and then they can also find us on Facebook and Instagram under the, uh, the handle Embody Yoga MKE. All right. Thank Thank you so much, Joanna. So now that we've gone through, remember that's www.embodyyogamke.com. If you want to get your yoga on, I might I might hit that up because I've been having back problems lately. So, <laughs> <laughs> so okay, we move on to our second part of the show, which is uh, people's choice, our guest choice. So whatever uh, Joanna wants to discuss, she can discuss. Whatever topic you want to discuss, anything, it's open. You know, I'm not super big into politics, um, and I don't watch the news, but I've been very saddened lately by um, the the, um, the detention centers that the immigrant children are in and the conditions that they're living in right now and the, kind of the prosecution, um, persecution of... Um, immigrants who are, you know, coming to the United States looking for better opportunities and in some case, cases safety um, and, and can't find it here and are met with um, hate and mistreatment. That's been um, bothering me quite a And so much so, I have a tendency to try to um, kind of like ignore things because ignorance is bliss, but that's one of those things that I just can't ignore and I can't wrap my mind around how we live in a world where that's okay. Yeah, because I know like Milwaukee has like a kind of a, a strong like immigrant uh, community. So like what's the, do anything, anything they're discussing in Milwaukee about this? I mean, well, we have um, some some organizations that, you know, consistently do that work um, and advocate in that way for those groups. Um, but if I scroll social media, you know, I'm just seeing, like, images of, you know, kids uh, laying on the floor covered in what looks like aluminum foil or even, like, pictures of dead bodies and things like that. Um, and to a certain extent, it's depressing because you you have access to the information, but you feel powerless. Like there's not much that you can do about it. And for me, it it hits closer to home because in my position at Stretch, I worked with a lot of um, students who are quote unquote undocumented, right? And so I had close relationships with those students, and I knew what their their fears were, what their anxieties were, etc. 
especially as Trump was coming into office. And so to, to watch everything transpire, but not really seeing a lot of activism, or at least I'm not tapped in to know what's going on, you know, it's, it kind of feel a, a sense of um, helplessness and hopelessness too about it. But yeah, we do have, a, 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 I think, a fairly large immigrant population here in Milwaukee. Okay, so I, I have one question, you know, because I, I left Milwaukee in uh, 2008, so I wasn't around for the uh, the Scott Walker administration. What what were y'all thinking putting him in office? That's the only question I got. What, what was going on? <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I don't know. And to be perfectly honest, I'm not as involved in politics as some people are. Um, I don't know in general, like, everybody that I knew hated Scott Walker and wanted him out of office. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, but I, I'm glad he no longer is. I know that's a good thing, but I know we still have a long way to go, too. Yeah. All right, so you yeah, end up, I end with all my guests asking them, there's three things. So it's the last book you read, the last movie you saw, and the last song you heard. Last book that I read was Mrs. Everything. Um, I can't think of the name of the author right now. It was fiction. I've read a lot of fiction lately. I um, recently bought myself a Kindle because I had got back into my habit of reading. Um, but I felt kind of guilty about like buying these books and then they would just pile up and sit around and you know I had donated them. I just felt like it was wasteful. So I bought a Kindle, and so I've been uh, uploading, uh, downloading a lot of uh, fiction onto that. And uh, the cool thing about it, though, even though it's fiction, it was very educational for me. Uh, it follows the lives of two sisters, one of whom um, identifies as gay, but growing up in like the nineteen, like uh, late nineteen forties and fifties and sixties. You know, so uh, it talks about, you know, her experience um, and struggling with her uh, sexual orientation and identity at that time, at a time where it was completely unacceptable to love somebody of the same sex and gender as you. Um, and the author did a really good job of researching what was happening in the world at that time uh, and talking about, you know, um, politics and things like that, even social politics that made things the way they were. Um, and then similarly, the other sister ended up in an interracial marriage. Um, and the, I think it was probably like the 70s or so. Um, and so you know, just talking about how her family, um, coming from a Jewish family, how they, how they received that and things like that. It was a, a, an excellent book, an excellent read. Um, the last um, movie that I watched, I don't know, um, watch a lot of movies these days, but uh, last time I went to the theaters, I saw the movie Ma, Ma. with Octavia Spencer. Uh, I saw that too. I went to a screening. I, that was, that movie was wild. They didn't, I didn't think it was going to go that direction that it went. It was definitely strange, and it was different than I thought, but I have a whole lot of respect for Octavia Spencer. She is, I think, an amazing um, actress, and I think she did really well in that role. Um, there are some parts that I thought probably could have been 
better or and I certainly didn't expect it to go the direction that it went. I think it could have went a lot of different ways. Um, and I wish I had done better at the box office, but all in all I enjoyed it. And then the last song that I listened to, um I can't remember the exact last song that I listened to, but I love Jay-Z, and I've been um, practicing and working out to him lately, so I'm sure it was some Jay-Z song. All right, so thank you very much, uh, Joanna, for joining me today. This has been episode three, so as always, I tell to everyone who listens to this, uh, be good and drink your water. Thank you.